Well, last week, uh, the first Sunday of Lent, we introduced uh, a new series uh, that we have called Encountering Jesus. The whole uh, impetus behind this is Lent is obviously entering into particularly the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. We begin our identification with Jesus in that way, and that's why various forms of fasting and self-denial have always been a part of Lent. But it's not for the purpose of just showing how disciplined or undisciplined we are during Lent. It is for the purpose of us encountering Jesus in new ways. The sermon that I began with last week, and by the way, our whole preaching team will be involved in this throughout the next coming weeks leading to Easter, but I started with just really focusing on one verse, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14. I believe that that one verse is the key to understanding who is this person of Jesus Christ that we see with various snapshots throughout the Gospels. And the key phrase is John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, he came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. Grace and truth are the two characteristics that I believe all of what we need to know about Jesus flow out of those two character qualities. And I made the point last week, those are complementary They are not contradictory, they are not at odds with each other, even though as human beings it's very hard for us to hold grace and truth together. I also made the point that in any group, folks tend to fall on the truth side. Truth is what is important, we need laws, we need to obey laws, let's stick to our guns on that. And then there's other folks that are on the grace side. Let's bring compassion and acceptance to all that we meet, and so it's hard for us to hold these things together. But I made this point, that Jesus is our example. If you put up the next slide, he is the perfect example of holding both grace and truth perfectly applied. None of us are Jesus. But I made the point at the conclusion of the sermon, Jesus would not have expressed or demonstrated his own ability to hold those two things together if it wasn't possible for us. Because Jesus lives in us, we can demonstrate that. Next slide, please. The Encountering Jesus series is stories from the Gospels that are on the road to Easter. What we will celebrate five weeks from now is the glorious idea that all of these things that we saw Jesus do are actually possible because he lives in us. Next slide. Jesus perfectly applied both grace and truth. Another way of saying it, he was generous in his compassion and he was gracious in his convictions. Again, complementary, not at odds. And the final application I made was this. Grace and truth come together because in the encounters we see in the Gospels, Jesus accepted every human being where they were at. There were no preconditions. He didn't say to anybody, I can't be in your presence. In fact, we know that he went to the outcasts and those on the margins. 
but he never left a person in that state. And that's what we're trying to illustrate as we express these encounters with Jesus. And I used an illustration of a coin as one way of seeing grace and truth together. You cannot separate heads from tails on a coin. And when we talk about the gospel, the gospel entails grace and truth held together just as a coin. I was listening to some, uh, a podcast on my way down. I'm getting a lot of podcasts done on my journey back and forth to Bellingham. But Martin Luther made a quote along these lines I was unaware of. He said, grace and truth are like a saddle on the back of a horse. The best way to ride is when the saddle is centered. You ever tried to ride a horse when the saddle isn't tied up very well? I had a horrible experience with that one time. I'll share that for another sermon. Can't ride a horse when that saddle is falling to one side or the other. And Luther said this, the devil doesn't care which side of the horse we fall off on. He just doesn't want us centered on the horse. Great illustration from someone who was very familiar with riding of horses. So my question this morning is, who are you? When somebody new is introduced to you, how do you describe yourself? Do you describe yourself first by your role? I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a widow. I'm a widower. I'm a grandma. I'm a grandpa. Are you a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister? Do you define yourself by your family role initially? A lot of us in this culture, especially men, define ourselves by the jobs you have. When someone asks, who are you, do you lead with, I am currently blue-collar worker, white-collar worker, or if you're retired, I used to do this or that? Do you describe yourself by your own ethnic background? I'm Norwegian-Danish, 50-50, split down the middle. Are you Irish and you're excited about March 17th coming up? Are you Korean? Mexican, etc. Do you define yourself by your ethnicity? Some of us define ourselves by our hobby. I love fishing. I love woodworking. I love working out. And others define themselves by the sports team that their heart beats for. I'm a Seahawk. I'm a Husky. I'm a Cougar. I'm a Mercer Island Islander. Whatever it is, we fly flags on our homes and demonstrate our identity. So again, the question is, how do you define yourself this morning? Probably by a combination of all of those things. And this morning, I just want to give three snapshots of encounters with Jesus where that is the question that he is asking of each of these individuals. The first one is Simon the Zealot. And we didn't have our uh, scripture reading at the very beginning because I've asked our esteemed scripture reader, Dave, to uh, come up three times to just give us the short passage of each of these. So Dave, come on up. This is from Luke 6, 13 through 16. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, 
Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thank you, Dave. And you're saying, boy, lists of names are really inspiring. What an exciting passage that is. But there are throughout the Bible, and whenever lists of names are given to us, there's a reason behind it. Now, obviously, this is an important group of people because Luke is giving us, as the other gospel writers do, the list of the 12. But I want to focus on Simon, who was called the Zealot. Scripture doesn't give us a lot about this guy. His name is only listed four times in the Gospels, and they're really just in a list. There's no character qualities, but the tagline, the fact that Luke records he was Simon who was called the Zealot gives us a huge window into the possibilities. And the main clue is a zealot in Jesus' time was a radical political activist because there was actually a group of terrorists, really, we would call them today, called the Zealots. These were Jewish political revolutionaries. They despised Roman rule. And ever since the Greeks had come through under Alexander the Great prior to the Romans, the Jews had been under the thumb of two superpowers. And so like terrorist groups in our day today, they continued to be a thorn in the side of the Roman soldiers and the Roman authorities. They would take out Roman soldiers in certain places, just like we see again in our day. Their goal, however, even though they were irritating to the Roman authorities, it was the full overthrow of the Roman Empire in terms of the occupation. They wanted the Romans out of their country. And they advanced their agenda through acts of violence and terrorism. Again, things that we're very familiar with in our world today. And it's interesting that Simon was the opposite of Matthew. Matthew was Jewish. Simon is Jewish. Matthew is a collaborator with Rome. That's why the uh, Jewish tax collectors were despised by their own people because they were connected to Rome. Can you imagine Jesus picking polar opposites politically and actually how they dealt with the Roman authorities? He chooses both of these guys to live with him for three years. You pick the most contentious political people you know and let's put them in a house for three years with Jesus and see what happens. This is who Simon was. The only other reference in the scriptures that we have, and I'm glad this is there, because we would have not known what happened to Simon the Zealot. Acts 1.12 is the only other reference, and if you know the book of Acts, this is right after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And the next thing we see is a list of names that are in the upper room waiting for Pentecost 
waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, waiting for the birth of the church. And guess who's mentioned? Simon the Zealot. He's still a zealot, a zealous. He's still given that tagline, probably to differentiate himself from Simon Peter. But it also gives me a clue, and this is just my opinion, but I believe that because Simon is mentioned after the resurrection and the ascension, that he was a Jesus follower. He didn't cut and run and say, wait a minute, the whole reason I followed this guy was he seemed super powerful, he was a superhero, he could do miracles, he was going to help us overthrow the Romans. Well, we know that hope was dashed early on. And in fact, John 18, 36, if you put that text up, this is Jesus himself. Simon the Zealot would have heard this before Jesus' death. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But chill, disciples, now my kingdom is from another place. And this is, again, my own personal belief that because Simon is listed in Acts, that Jesus took someone who was so hyper-politically motivated and so angry that he was willing to kill Romans for the sake of his own country, that man's heart was changed. He was no longer identified as Simon the Zealot. Now he was zealous for the kingdom of God. My question as we think about Simon is, are you one of those who is passionate about seeing politics as the answer for the world's problems? In the old days, are you one that would have put a political sign in your yard or a bumper sticker on your car? That's the way it was for most of my life, and yet then we just got tired of scraping bumper stickers off our car, especially if our candidate lost. Now we do it through social media. And all of us experienced four years ago the trauma of the 2016 election. And so here we are again, unfriending people because of all the rhetoric, those friends of ours that somehow see political change or at least put it out on social media like social, uh, social media is going to be the key to political change. Are you fired up about this current political campaign? Are you excited about what's going to happen in the rest of the spring and summer as we head towards the election? Again, I'm not making a comment about the importance of politicians and the political work of a country like ours. My point is that there is a strong temptation in our per current political climate to think that ultimate answers and progress will come if we get our person in the White House. And I love to point this out. The New Testament documents were born in a political climate where nobody had a say. There was no voting in the Roman Empire. You had despot emperors who ruled with an iron fist, and we know that many of them began to persecute Christians. And yet, what was Jesus' word? It wasn't start a revolution overthrow the emperor, do all you can to deny him his authority. Jesus said, give unto Caesar what you owe him. Now let's get on with the work of the kingdom. 
Again, I'm not trying to be simplistic. I'm simply trying to say the way I read the scriptures is there is a warning against seeing political power and influence as of greater importance than Jesus and the kingdom of God. So I believe that's the lesson we learn from our friend Simon. His passion as a zealot was reshaped because of his encounter with Jesus. Well, let's look now at another person that I alluded to last week. Uh, And Dave, would you come back up and read from John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So if Simon the Zealot, if his identity was around his political activism and terrorism, now we see a more familiar story in terms of this woman at the well. And for her, it's based on relationships. I always say the old country song, she was looking for love in all the wrong places. Elizabeth Taylor is the only person I can think of, old reference for you youngsters. But Elizabeth Taylor, I don't know how many times she was married. But when we see folks that just are in this serial challenge of finding something that they so long for, this time it's going to work. And it continues to be a relational train wreck for this woman until she's wandering to this well in the afternoon sun and she meets Jesus. She was obviously relationally damaged. Can you imagine her view of men? And can you imagine her view of herself as a woman after all that she had been through? But like Simon the Zealot, all indications are that she became a follower of Jesus. And the clue is further on in this same chapter in verse 40. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Isn't that a wonderful phrase, how John writes that? We don't know a lot about her train wreck of relationships, but we do know that her relational brokenness has now been healed to the point where she could go to the people who knew her as an outcast. Imagine what her own Samaritan people thought of her. And now she's not ashamed to stand up with everybody knowing her background and say, I have found healing through this man, Jesus Christ. She was no longer defined by who she was in a relationship with a man. She was now defined by her identity in Jesus Christ. Our final snapshot is from John chapter 5. David, for the final time. 
Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? 38 years. Some people here today have had to struggle with physical challenges and health challenges for that long and longer. Some of you haven't lived that long. And so you don't know what it would be like to face that kind of a challenge for that length of time. Man also was probably well known, just like the Samaritan woman, by the people of that area. How could they not know for 38 years this man who was sitting by this pool? I'm sure he was pitied. They knew the poor guy that would always find himself by the pool. And I had Dave stop at that question that Jesus asked him because this is a haunting one. Who in their right mind would go up to an invalid person who they knew had been sick for 38 years? And their opening question is, do you want to get well? That could be the, most, the biggest dagger that anyone had ever stuck into this man. So what in the world is Jesus doing with this question? Well, there's a bit of good news. Because Jesus did heal him in verse 8, Jesus simply spoke to him. There was no religious uh, hocus-pocus or magic going on. Jesus simply spoke, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And John writes, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked away. Often, the miracles of Jesus are very succinct. We're not given a lot of information, because that's not really the point. As exciting as it is for a man who had been invalid for 38 years to be healed, that isn't the ultimate point. And we learn this because Jesus wanted to do something even more profound and more miraculous than physical healing. The invalid man had gone from a dead spiritual state to new life in Jesus Christ. He got a twofer. He got physical wellness as well as spiritual wellness. And I'm not trying to be super spiritual here. I hope you understand I'm empathetic towards people. How in the world can you not be defined by a medical issue or a health challenge that you have? And yet I have to wrestle with how Jesus dealt with this man. He gave him a new identity that wasn't based on being defined by his physical challenge. But now, he too, like the Samaritan woman, went and told the people of his part of Jerusalem, what had happened to him. 
So here's three very different people. Someone whose identity was politics, someone whose identity was their relationships, someone who had been defined by their own health. All three were spiritually dead. All three, Jesus, to some level, gave them what they wanted. And yet I believe that Jesus is also pointing out, what if he had caused a revolution and Rome had been kicked out? What if he played matchmaker and brought the kindest, gentlest man into the Samaritan woman's life to try and show her what a relationship with a man could be like? And we know that the invalid did get healed. Is that the ultimate for them? Well, we know that when, often when we get what we asked for, we're still left empty. Because ultimately, Jesus knows that even the wonderful nature of any of those three things won't completely satisfy us in the end. Jesus demands to be at the center of our identity. And there's two great truths I think we can learn from these three. The first one is from John 1.12. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want you to rest in that for a minute because as Christians we get so used to that phrase like, yeah, tell me something new. <laughs> you and I, if we're followers of Christ, we're sons of the King, we're daughters of the King. That changes my identity in how I look at myself. The miracle of new birth has given us a new family status. The apostles had each experienced a major change in their identity when they encountered the risen Jesus. This wasn't theoretical. This wasn't academic. This was real. They now saw themselves through a new lens, and it was they were children of the king. Second thing is there's a new identity marker, and the apostles reflected this in their writings. The Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia said there's not, neither Jew or Gentile. You're not slave or free. You're not male or female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. This is the true emancipation proclamation of the gospel. Now, those different markers that we would identify as our, this is who I am, those now come out of who we are in Jesus Christ. This is the longing of the world. Why do we have the United Nations? Why do we have the Olympics where we try on our human level to try and have this kumbaya moment where we no longer see the differences and we want so desperately to be one as human beings? And the gospel has said throughout its history that that unifying factor is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Three final things to close with that have to do with our identity. The Bible is clear that, first of all, we die to our old selves. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth said, that's what some of you were, past tense. And he had just given a whole list of identifying markers that people said, this is who I am. Paul says, that's what you were, but you were washed, 
sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Secondly, the Bible is clear that we find our true selves in Jesus. This is the best verse that I could choose out of many. But Paul himself says, I've been crucified, identifying with Jesus' cross and death. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A new identity. And finally, the Bible is clear that we now belong to somebody else. We have traded our old identity and now we are not our own, the Apostle Paul wrote, because we have been bought with a price. So my question this morning is Jesus has come up to you and he's asked you that question. Who are you? How are you going to define yourself? Are you a political radical? Are you someone who if you can find true love in relationship, that will satisfy you? Do you have a need for healing physically and emotionally? And that's something that you long for. What part of your life this morning do you need to recenter in Christ? Who does Jesus truly say that you are? Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we rest in our status as your children. We just bathe in it today and rejoice that you've called us by name and you've showed us a different way. Not that does away with our identity, but one that gives us a new center so that all of who you've made us to be flows out of that center and we can truly be at rest and truly be at peace because of who you are in us. We lay our identity on the line, we put it on the altar for you to continue your good work of refining. In Jesus' name, amen.